Thank you for listening or watching our podcast. Baptism is a sign of the covenant and not our faith. We do not see baptism having its origins in the New Testament, but originating in the Old Testament. If this is true, then why does the New Testament so clearly seem to teach that one first professes their faith and then they are baptized? Where do we see baptism as a sign of the covenant rather than a sign of our faith? Where do we see that baptism is a picture of the gospel that shows us a warning and assurance of the Lord's blessing and his covenantal promises? If you are curious about these questions, please stay tuned and listen to our sermon on baptism. Today, uh, we witness the profession of faith, and we witness baptism. And when we look at the New Testament and, and we look at what Peter is saying here in Acts, we've already talked about Paul addressing Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, reminding Timothy of the profession he's made in the context of the witnesses. It does seem there's a practice in the church uh, where there is some sort of an evaluation of someone's uh, testimony or Christian profession and then there is a standing up and saying, yes, I believe these things. But when we turn in and we look at Acts 2, in particular, we look at verses 37 and 38, we can read this and, and we wonder what's going on. They ask Peter, what do we do? And Peter gives them this strange response. Repent and be baptized. That's not something we necessarily see as strange. We, we see that with John the Baptist as he prepares a way for Christ. But he says, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. So when we look at this, it, it really seems as if the verse is telling us that when we're baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit. So, so baptism is a condition to receiving God's Spirit dwelling within us. So when we hear that, it makes me a little uncomfortable when we try and go to that extreme. Because we're basically saying that the sacraments force the hand of God to do its work. In other words, if I want someone to be converted, I baptize them, and then they're converted. And so is this really what the text is saying? Well, what is Peter doing here as we consider the context of Pentecost, the exhortation of baptism, which is clearly an exhortation. We, we can't get around that from the text. What do we do with this? What is this teaching us? What do we learn from this? So as we consider this, we'll see first, repent and receive, and we'll walk through this verse. Recalling God's promise, second. And then we basically take the implications of it briefly and apply God's promise. What, what is what does God intend um, by this? And what is Peter saying as an apostle? And so the repent and receive, as I've already laid this out in the introduction, where Peter says, literally, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So we hear this, it seems as if it's pretty simple. Repent, be baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. It seems as if the chain is, is rather simple. But we got to put this in the context, and I guess you probably knew that's where I was going with this. 
As I always say, context, context, context. Well, what is Peter doing here? What has happened? Well, we have to put this in the context of Pentecost and ask ourselves, what is Pentecost? Why is that day so significant for the church? Well, Pentecost, we, we find in the opening of Acts 2, verses 7 and 8, and I decided uh, not to read those, that additional context for time, but just to summarize it here. And you, you have the Spirit going out, and people are all of a sudden shocked, where it says in verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? In other words, you, you have a, a mixed community of people. You have these individuals that don't know their language. But now all of a sudden, they're hearing the gospel in their language. And they're saying, how is this happening? Moments ago, we couldn't even talk to each other. Now all of a sudden, we're hearing about the gospel from people who couldn't talk to us, talking in our language as if they're fluent in our language. So what's significant about Pentecost is that it, it overturns what is done at the Tower of Babel. And so this is where the whole Bible, we can see it coming together. We think of Genesis 11, if you're not familiar with the story. The world assembles and they say, oh, we're going to build a tower. We're going to build this tower and make it so that the God of heaven comes down and we can climb up to him. And so the intentions are going to build this great tower. They're going to assemble together and they're going to be able to take the true God of heaven and make him serve his purpose by basically penetrating the heavenly fortress and manipulating the true God. Well, the irony in Genesis 11 is that the, the presentation is God needs to sort of lean forward in his throne and squint and say, what is man doing down there? Now, it's not that God's ignorant or God needs to do this, but it's using man-like language or what we say anthropomorphic language. It's a fancy way of saying it, but we're using man-like language to describe God. And so the presentation is that uh, it's presented as if, you know, God being the ruler and king over the world, that this great endeavor that the humans think is great is so small that God needs to actually step down and squint and look and see what's going on. And by a mere command, and this is an important point, by a mere command, by his word, he gives a mere command. Their language is confused. And all of a sudden, these people cannot talk to each other. So now we go to Pentecost. And we hear in Acts 2, verse 8, this, this very thing that divided humanity. Now we have God coming down in Christ Jesus. He's the one who comes to his people, takes the language barrier, destroys it, so the gospel goes to the nations. So it's important to understand in Acts, Pentecost is the celebration that Christ has done his work. The promise that God has made has been finished. It is accomplished. It is done. The Spirit is sent out, not just to the particular descendants of Abraham, which is why I wanted to read from Galatians 3 uh, for our declaration of pardon, but that we're all uh, those who are sons of Abraham as we confess the same Christ. And so when we go back now, we look in Acts 2 verse 38 when Peter's saying this, he wants them to understand 
listen, the gospel's gone out. You have to understand what the prophets intended. Christ is the one, the incarnate word of God, the action of God, who has fulfilled the word of the prophets. But going on, there's even a, a deeper context to this story. Because Acts begins with Christ going to heaven, right? He's ascending into heaven. So he meets with his disciples. And in Acts 1 verse 7, they, they want to know, Lord, uh, or one verse, well, the beginning of Acts 1, basically 6 through 8, you have the disciples turning to Christ and saying, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to the Jews? In other words, for, for the disciples, they, they still have this mindset. The Messiah secures the Jewish nation. And, and as the Messiah secures the Jewish nation, we, we want to know, when do we go into Jerusalem? When do you sit upon David's throne? And when do we enjoy the kingdom? That is their question. Well, Christ says, you don't know the days and times. In other words, there, there is a time when we will see Christ seated upon the throne. We will see the fullness of the kingdom of God. But Christ is saying, that's, that's, you're, you're misunderstanding things. You're assuming that just having the Spirit, you're missing out, and there's no progress in covenant history. Christ is saying, there's a progress. The gospel is going out. The promise of the physical, visible seating of Christ upon the throne of glory, that's when Christ comes again. Right now, we taste the fulfillment of the promise that God has made. That's what Christ wants them to understand in that statement. You, you don't know the times. You don't know when Christ is coming again. But Christ also says something else significant. Because Christ doesn't just say, no, that you're wrong. Christ goes on to say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8. So Acts 1 verse 8 is setting the tone for the book of Acts. This is the intention of Peter's Pentecost sermon. That this gospel is going to go out from Jerusalem, that the proper city of God, to Samaria, which would be half Jew, Gentile. Uh, then it goes from there. Uh, well, it goes Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, which means to us, the Gentiles, uh, those who would normally be thought of as excluded. And so Peter, in making this declaration, and, and these people asking about why, why are these different languages being spoken? Why, why are we hearing this in our language? Peter's saying they're not drunk, as you assume. It's actually the manifestation of God's redemptive promise. And so why does Peter then tell them to repent? Because repent, I mean, some of the more radical grace guys would say repentance is just changing one's mind. Well, it becomes then something where you're persuaded whether to have a, a salad or a sandwich uh, for lunch. It's, it's more than just changing one's mind. Uh, re repentance is one aligning their whole purpose of life. So yeah, there, there is a, a change of mind, but it's, it's a change of heart, a change in orientation, a change in priority. It's basically everything about us is changed. 
And so what Peter's calling them to do is to orient themselves in Christ, to be tuned in to that purpose. But notice what led to this declaration of repentance. Peter preaches his sermon, and they're cut to the heart. So you have here the word of promise going out. The Lord works in the power of the word to convict these individuals. As Peter says, the one you've handed over to death, the one whom you crucified, they're cut to the heart. A month ago, roughly, they're chanting in the courtroom of, of Pilate, crucify, 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 right? Now this same crowd, seeing this strange phenomena, is standing there in front of Peter saying, what did we do? And Peter's saying, yeah, you sent an innocent man to death, a Messiah, but don't worry, it's the purpose of God. And they say, well, how do we make this right? And he's saying, turn your ways. Be aligned in the identity of this Messiah. And so when he calls them to be repented and to be baptized, we, we say, well, what does this mean? Normally, when we look at the gospel records, it's repent and believe. But here Peter is saying, repent and be baptized. And this is where I think it's important that we we sort of go deeper in Scripture and we think about the intended promise of God. So what is the intended promise of God? As we mentioned, repent, reorienting oneself in the purpose of the Messiah and Christ, be baptized. This is being set apart. I think her form does a wonderful job of laying out, being set apart uh, in the Trinitarian God, simply meaning one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what, what do we do with this? Well, when we look at this in the context, and even when we look at verse 39, when Peter tells them to repent and be baptized, what does he say in verse 39? For the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so right here, we have this presentation but it's not just for, for those who believe, but, but even, even for children and, and those who are to be heirs. And so what, what is Peter saying? Well, one verse we can think of that's called to our mind. We think of Isaiah 54, verse 13, with the promise that, that the children will be taught directly by the Lord. In other words, there's going to be this generational teaching where God works. We have Joel 2, verse 28, that Peter's already cited. Uh, where Joel prophesies that your sons and daughters will prophesy and, and hear these promises. The thing of Ezekiel 36, the promise of being sprinkled uh, and receiving new life. <clears throat> and so we can look at this and we can say, okay, well, there's these promises of, of this baptism of these children being taught in, in the spirit. But, but what else? What do we make of this? Well, one of the things I think we can miss it's a very key text. And when we think back in covenant history, we think back to Genesis 17, covenant of circumcision. And a lot of people say, well, that's circumcision. That's, that's a sign in the flesh. We're, we're talking about baptism. We're talking about Ezekiel 36. We're talking about Isaiah 58. We're, we're talking about being sprinkled in water and, and children being regenerated. We're not talking about circumcision. Until we read 
Genesis 17, 7. And what does the Lord say to Abram in that context? He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting covenant, and I will be their God. Now, Genesis 17, 7 and 8, there certainly is a, a tie to the land. But there's also that promise given that there's going to be this everlasting covenant. Well, you might say, well, right, but it's only tied to the land. How, how does this work? Well, we have to understand that the sign comes after the promise. And this isn't my understanding of this. Paul says this very thing in Romans 4, verse 11, where he sees that the covenant of promise coming before the sign of the promise. And that's right. Circumcision is originally the sign of the promise. We may say, well, well how can that be? That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, Genesis 17 is a chapter that comes to us after a tragic event. Abram is one who was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And so when Ishmael is born, this is a, a tragedy, actually. Not because of Ishmael, but because of how Ishmael came into existence. You see, in Genesis 15, the Lord made a promise, a covenant of grace, where the Lord passes between the pieces of animals where the Lord is going to take the sanction of death in the place of Abram. Well, Abram knows that there's going to be a continual line of the seed of the woman. There's going to be a Christ who's born in this line, a Christ who's going to overcome. This is why our Gospels have genealogies. They're establishing the lineage or credibility of Christ. And Abram's aware of this, and he's aware that he's going to be a significant participant in this. Because the promise of the covenant is going to come through Abram and Sarai. Now, we know their situation. They're barren. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, as good as dead. So you're going to have this picture of a resurrection life coming from death. Now, when we hear that as human beings, we think that's absurd. Something dies, it's dead. Somebody dies, they're dead. We don't expect them to rise up. Uh, if, if they wake up, then obviously something was wrong and they weren't really dead in our minds, right? So we can understand as human beings, we've been so conditioned from a fallen state that we believe dead is dead. There is no resurrection of the dead. This is something foreign, something difficult for us to believe. But nevertheless... This is what the Lord promises to Abram and Sarai. And what do they do? Genesis 16, they scheme. And Sarai says, take my handmaid and produce an heir. And so Abram takes her as a surrogate mother, and he produces an heir so that now the Lord's promise can come to fulfillment, right? Because now there's a son, and technically the son because this is through uh, Sarai's handmaid and by her instigation, the son sort of legally is Sarai's. And so Abram thinks he's basically given God a way out and he's won. Thirteen years later, after the word of the promise, we have 
the record. Abram here is 99. Ishmael's born 13 years prior to this as we find the record of that in Genesis 16. So the word of the promise has been standing now. The Lord comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to give you a sign on the organ of generation making explicit that the seed of the woman is going to come through your line. And so here we have that picture, that declaration, this sign, this, this sacrament given, picturing the very gospel. Life will come from death. So circumcision, we, we need to stop thinking about it as a sign of the flesh. It's a sign of life. It's a sign of resurrection. It's a sign of the fulfillment of God's promise. So we go back to Acts, where you probably thought I forgot about this text. We return back now to Acts 2, verse 39, or 38 and 39, where Peter calls them to repent, receive this, this sacramental sign. And what's the basis of it? Well, the basis is a very thing Abram struggled to believe. Genesis 15, 6, was counted to him as righteousness. It's not that, that Abraham's a, a horrible person. We all struggle with this. And so the Lord is saying, or through Peter, as he's inspired by the Lord, and he gives us application, he's saying, repent, turn unto the Lord. See Christ as a fulfillment of what was made to Abram. This is the one who secures life, the one who has been raised from the dead. The impossibility of God's victory is being manifested before your eyes. That's what Peter's calling out. And so briefly then, how do we apply these promises? What, what does this mean in, in light of what we have witnessed this morning as we have this survey of covenant history? We put this in the context of, of Scripture well, we got to think back then. What is that fundamental covenant promise? The fundamental covenant promise is that as we say amen to the promises of God, the victory of Christ is our victory. It means that as we struggle, no matter what we have done, Christ has taken away those sins. Christ is the one who has passed through the very passage of death this is why Abram, when he stares down between the animals, if you go home and read Genesis 15, a great darkness overcomes him. That darkness is not accidental. That is a darkness of hell itself. And Abram knows that if he walks between those animals, he is destined for hell. And when the Lord passes between them, the Lord is saying, I will take the sanction of hell and death from you and secure life. Pentecost, with the fire falling down, that very picture is recalling for us all this prophetic language. Genesis 15, with the smoking uh, oven, and you have the fire pot going between the pieces of animals like the legs of God. Fire is significant. It's cleansing. It's power. It's God's presence in the midst of darkness. But also, when this community is baptized, what is this doing? It is publicly declaring them as those who are aligned with the purpose of Christ. This is that visible sign of saying, yes, I am set apart unto the living God. We do this for our covenant children because we see that in Genesis 17. 
that this is a children who are to be raised up and instructed in the Lord. But here also the sign of baptism is where the community is saying, no, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We no longer need circumcision. Not only has blood been done away with in terms of its bloodshed, but also looking to the climatic seed of the woman has been done away. Christ has been raised from the dead. As Peter says in his sermon, he has ascended into heaven. The victory is ours in him. But third, what else is going on? As I mentioned, the overturning of the curse at Babel. Remember when the earthlings conspired together to rise up into the heavenly sanctuary, the throne room of God, and storm it and lead the great God of heaven around on a leash like a little dog, only to find out the great God of heaven is far bigger than they even imagined. And the great God of heaven, merely by giving a command, confuses them all. And they become as confused ants upon the earth, scattering around as the text sort of communicates it to us, continuing to use that language. So now when we think about Pentecost, the promise of God is not only going out to the direct descendants genealogically, meaning that they can tie their roots directly back to Abraham because we can trace father to father and father all the way back to Abraham. But we are children of Abraham as we profess Christ by faith, as Paul celebrates in Galatians 3. The very intention of Abraham having descendants as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore, it's not just that he's going to have literally a lot of descendants, as we do find, coming to pass, but it's showing the bigger intention of it. That there are going to be those who are children of Abraham as they share the same faith, looking to the same Messiah. Abraham to the promise, we look to the realization. But we go on. We go then, fourthly, and we think, well, what about the substance of the promise? We have to understand this is a visible presentation of the gospel. That's what a sacrament is. It's a visible presentation of the gospel. So as a word goes forth and the Lord is pleased to work through that word, cultivating and recreating life, convicting these individuals of sin by the power of his spirit, what's, what's the prescription? Turn to the Lord. Embrace Christ. Walk in the power of Christ. Be aligned with his community. Be identified with his people. Publicly affirm Jesus Christ as Messiah. This is the reality of it. So when Peter then is giving this application and saying, repent and be baptized, what does he mean? Well, he's using a sacramental exhortation. If we're going to take Acts 2.38 and 39 and, and rip them out of the context and pretend like Peter's Pentecost sermon never happened, in other words, we just do the sacrament, the magical thing happens apart from the word of God, well, then we're going to completely miss the point of this. Because if we're going to take sacraments so literally, then what do we do at Jeremiah 4 verse 4 when he calls Israel to circumcise their hearts? Is he telling them to literally perform open-heart surgery? To cut away tough skin around the heart? Is he saying that when children are eight days old, that, that we open up their hearts and we cut away the skin around their heart? I mean, that would be tragic. That, that, that would be horrible. 
That, that would not be something that, that we would embrace or say parents should do for normally healthy children. I mean, there may be times when that may happen. But that's not something we say is the norm. The point is, be tender to the purpose of God. Be in line with the purpose of God. That's what the exhortation means. So when Peter says, repent and be baptized, what is he saying? Repent and be aligned where the Spirit normally works. Where does the Spirit normally work? In the context of God's assembly. In the context of his church. And so when Peter is saying, repent and be baptized, what is he saying? He's saying, align yourself with the purpose of God. Be identified in his church. And the Lord is the one who is setting apart in this picture of the gospel of his spirit being present and understanding that we are communing with the great God of heaven. Be identified with the holy ones of our Lord. And so this morning, what we have witnessed is what? The very standing up publicly and saying, I am committing publicly before the living God that I am aligned and joined to his purpose. I'm joining to his church, the visible body of Christ. I'm joined to Christ by my profession. And I believe that this Lord is the one who continues to be at work in us. And so when we take these words from Peter, let's hear the, the beauty of what Peter's saying. Think about this crowd a month ago, literally just about a month ago, prior to this sermon, standing in the courtroom of Pilate, not only condemning an innocent man to death, which again is, is, is horrendous in the sight of God, and then, and then joining in a conspiracy to send an innocent man to death, but they're doing it to the Son of God. And not only are they condemning him to death where, you know, maybe there could be a, a humane way, and the most humane way that Rome could execute someone is in beheading. Not that I'm advocating this and saying, that's a great way to go. But anyway, I'm just saying in terms of, of a humane way to execute someone, that, that would be maybe a little better. But what do they do? They go to the most extreme, disgusting depraved way of executing someone where even Rome itself doesn't want to have a record of who's crucified and who's not because Rome isn't proud of this practice. But it's a deterrent. It keeps those from rebelling against the authorities. And that's what these men, this crowd, shouted a month prior to this sermon. So when you think about Peter delivering this and being caught to the heart where you say, what did we do? We sent not only an innocent man, but the Messiah to face the most depraved, engineered death that one could come up with. And we chanted for it. We voted for it. We yelled for it. We fought for it. And what's the answer? Repent. This Lord can cover even that sin. Turn to him. Take your lives and be aligned with his purpose. Be confident of his redemptive work. Be confident of what he has done. And continue to press forward, saying amen to the promises of God. And so in conclusion then, when we say, what really is going on in terms of Peter's exhortation? It's an exhortation not only 
to the individuals who have publicly professed their faith, to continue to fight the good fight, continue to fight to be in alignment with the Lord. The Apostle Paul himself, when he recounts his conversion, don't kick against the goats. We can fight against the purpose of God. Continue to give ourselves over to the purpose of the Lord. Continue to repent, turn unto the Lord, realign our purpose. Because we understand who we are. If left to ourselves, we would be Abram in Genesis 15, staring down the blood path of death, staring into hell with no hope. But like Israel here in this international community, cut to the heart. What is the way out? Repent, embrace Christ, be aligned with the community where the Spirit works. Let us then continue to conform to our Lord, to encourage one another, to bring glory to his name, and being humble. Because none of us, not a single one of us, deserves the redemptive mercy of God. But in Christ Jesus, we have more than the world. We have the kingdom of heaven that we taste in the power of the Spirit. Let us not neglect that. Let us not minimize it. But let us walk in that true heavenly power as a redeemed people who have been made alive by the Lord's grace and mercy. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.